Welcome to the FCC Podcast. Hear all the stories, worship, and teaching from Sunday service. Want to connect with us or learn more about FCC? Visit us at FCCETown.com. Here at First Christian, we are uh, doing everything we can to lead people closer to Jesus. It's what we're all about, and, and it seems as though if we're going to lead people closer to Jesus, part of that is making sure that people know who Jesus is and know what it is that Jesus said. That's a really important part of living for Jesus and following Jesus and getting closer to Jesus. And that's why I love this series, because it's given us a chance to look at some things that people are convinced are in the Bible. In some cases, people are convinced that Jesus said that just aren't in there, and Jesus never said them, and God never said them. And so we've looked at different statements. We've looked at statements like, uh, God will never give you more than you can handle, which is not in the Bible. We, we've looked at money is the root of all evil, which is also not in the Bible. And we dug into to where that came from and, and how that uh, came about. And, and then we looked last week at love the sinner and hate the sin, which is, seems like a really good statement, but it might be a good statement, but there are better statements and yet in every case, none of these, though they sound really religious and like really good re- religious statements and even Bible worthy, none of them are in the Bible, which is pretty important for us to know. It's necessary if we're going to know who God is and we're going to know uh, what he said that we understand what is actually in the Bible and what isn't in the Bible. And the statement for today is, is not dissimilar. The statement for today is one of the most famous Bible statements that has ever been that actually isn't in the Bible, okay? And, and the statement for today is simply this. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. And you're probably maybe thinking to yourself right now, wait a second, I'm pretty sure that one's in there. Okay? I'm pretty sure, I can't remember the address, I'm not sure the exact chapter and verse, but I'm pretty sure God helps those who help themselves is actually in the Bible. And if that's you, and you're kind of thinking that, you would not be alone in that thought. Okay? There was a recent survey that was done by the Barna Group, and here's what they discovered. This is just a couple of years ago. When asked about the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, 53% of Americans agreed strongly with this statement. Okay? And on top of that, 68% of Christians, of church-going folks, of people who are followers of Jesus, agreed with this statement, God helps those who help themselves. But you can look at that and say, well, that just means that they agreed with it. It doesn't necessarily say that they believe it's in the Bible. Okay? Let me keep going. Different survey that was taken, and we discover this. 75% of American teenagers believe that that statement is the central message of the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Not, hey, Jesus is love. Not, grace is meant for everybody. Not, Jesus died on the cross and rose again to forgive you of your sins, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. No, God helps those who help themselves is the most central theme in the Bible, according to American teenagers around the country. I'm not done. In a list of phrases that was put in front of the American public, some common phrases, some actual verses from the Bible, and some statements that they got out of fortune cookies, okay? They asked people, which one of these statements is the most important verse in the Bible? And across the country, the American public decided that the most important verse in the whole Bible is, you guessed it, God helps those who help themselves. And yet, it's not 
actually in there. In fact, there's not even a verse that sounds something like that verse, okay? Some of the other things that we've been looking at, it seems as though it's just a misquote. Some people got the words wrong and they didn't quite have it right. This one's not in there at all. You, you can't find anything really close to this particular um, phrase. So, so how did this happen? How did we get to this place? Well, I think to some degree, this phrase right here, we like it because it still gives us a sense of control. Because it kind of reads like an if-then statement. It kind of reads like, you know what? If I'll do this, if I will do these things, if I will work in it to this degree, then that will free God up to do his thing. Okay? If I do this, then God will do that. But there is a pretty significant downside to believing in this statement. Some of us who are in this room and some of us who are watching online have experienced this. And that is that we can all do some really good things. And we can kind of create our life to go along the way that we think it's supposed to go and we can do the things we think we're supposed to do and we can participate in the things we think we're supposed to participate in. We can check all the boxes of life and then life doesn't go very well. And if we believe in this statement then suddenly our faith takes a hit and we are very disappointed with God because we did all the things that we were supposed to do and God never showed up. And if we believe that God helps those who help themselves and we do our work and he doesn't show up, then suddenly why do we even believe in God? And why do we put our, uh, our, our courage and our confidence in faith at all? This is, this is a really big deal because it, it pertains to how we think about God. And really all of these phrases, all of these statements are big deals because they impact how we think about God. And you see, how we see God affects everything that we do in life. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay, think about that. What, we, what, what comes into our minds when we think about God, no matter where you are on the faith continuum, okay, you may not even believe in God. You can be a complete atheist, but what you think, when, when, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's why we need to chase these phrases down. It's why we need to make sure that we understand what is and isn't in the Bible, what God did and did not say. Now, lots of people including me, really felt as though uh, and have, have thought for a long time that this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, was attributed to and came from Benjamin Franklin, okay? Which I thought would be perfect because it's July the 3rd, tomorrow's the 4th, we've got this big celebration going on, it's Independence Day, and, and Ben Franklin's one of the founding fathers, and so Benjamin Franklin said, God helps those who help themselves, and so it'd be a great tie-in for this particular weekend, and then all the things that Ben Franklin did in his presidency. Okay, you're still with me, just checking. Little history lesson, Ben Franklin was never president. Okay, so, moving on. Um, so, Ben Franklin did say, God helps those who help themselves. But it wasn't original with him. In fact, he misquoted it. When you trace it all the way back, it actually goes all the way back into the ancient literature of Greece. It's in Aesop's fables, 
One of the, if you don't know what Aesop's fables are, they're, they're, they're kind of like ancient bedtime stories that were, were, were around. And one of these stories that was told was about a farmer who was on his way to market with his produce and, and, and he was headed there and his cart got stuck in the mud. And it was so severely stuck, there was no way that he could get it free. And it was going to impact his family. This was, this was their, their, their time, this, their, their time in the season. They were going to make their money that was going to last them for a time. And they were going to miss out on this, this whole window of opportunity. And so the man dropped to his knees and he cried out to the gods of Greece. Okay, this is Greek mythology stuff. Cried out to the gods of Greece to help. And who would come down but Hercules because he needed someone strong. And so Hercules comes down. And Hercules tells the man to get up off of his knees. And before Hercules is willing to help the man, he tells the man to put his shoulder into the side of the cart and start pushing because, after all, the gods, plural, help those who help themselves. And that's where the phrase comes from. But that's Greek mythology. So how does that come all the way forward to land in the Bible, or at least people's perception of what the Bible says? Well, the Bible talks a lot about work. The Bible talks a lot about us doing things. The Bible talks a lot about us putting forth effort. And there's so much in the Bible about the presence of work and the presence of jobs and the presence of tasks that God gives us responsibility to do. We go all the way back to the, the Genesis account, creation account, We're told that God worked for six days. He was doing work for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And in fact, when he created Adam and Eve, when he created man and woman, he gave us jobs. He gave us work to do. There were tasks that were given to Adam and Eve. This is before sin, okay? This is before the fall. We were still given responsibilities in the garden to do work. God intended from the beginning that work would be part of our lives and that work would actually be a good thing. And then you have Jesus who said, look, if you've got talents, if you've got gifts, you you can't just bury them in the ground. You've got to use those gifts and put them to work and bring about greater things. The Apostle Paul taught us to be fruitful with our life. It was Solomon who who said in Proverbs, he said these words, um, work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. So here's the wisest man in the world who says, look, work is valuable. Work has reward attached to it. Work is necessary for us to do. But Solomon, who is in fact the wisest man in the world, also understood the opposite. He understood the other end of the spectrum and he understood the devaluing of life that comes through laziness. So he wrote in Proverbs chapter 20, those too lazy to plow in the right season will have no food at the harvest, there's consequences to being lazy. There's reward to our work. There's consequence for our laziness. So overall, there's this teaching in the Bible that work and effort was invented by God and that God intended work to be a good thing. And we have responsibility to give our lives to work But here's the struggle. What is the correlation between our work and the work of God? Because here's this phrase that's still spinning in our head. God helps those who help themselves. So what impact does my work have on the work of God? This is where it gets dangerous. 
Because we start trying to figure out what our part is in the work of God. And so we start trying to figure out what do I need to do that would then force God to do what I want him to do? How much effort do I need to put forward so that God will do and follow through with what I want him to do? And if we're not careful, we even get really specific about that and start making a connection to big subjects like grace and salvation and forgiveness. And what is it that I have to do to make God give me what I want? And we're trying to figure out how we can earn our own grace and how we can earn our own forgiveness through our work. And let me tell you this, right off the bat, that can't be done. Paul made it really clear, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, he said this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and he gets super specific here, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is all God. He makes it really clear, no question, this has nothing to do with anything you've done. Grace comes your way, forgiveness comes your way, not because of anything you've done, but it is the gift of God. You did not work for it. It is all God. So that clears it up. Until you read the next verse. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. For what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now I'm confused. Okay? So God says, look, there's, there's, no connect, there's nothing you need to do. I'm going to do all the work. But I have some work I need you to do. Okay? And we get really confused. And suddenly we come up with phrases like God helps those who help themselves because we're so confused that seems to make sense to us. But the thing is, there is no connection between the work that we do and the work that God does. And yes, there is expectation. We are even encouraged to work. But our work does not determine and does not even trigger the help of God. We go back to the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Let's ask a question that comes out of that. Who is it that we do know God helps, okay? Who does God help? The Bible tells us a lot of people that God helps. Our own experience tells us a lot of people that God helps. I think that God does help those who do work, but it's not exclusive to them. God also helps those who ask for help. And God also helps those who are needy. And God helps those who are weak. And God helps those who are scared. And God helps those who are in way over their heads. And sometimes God helps people just because he wants to help people. And God helps the just and he helps the unjust. And God helps the righteous and God helps the unrighteous. And that bothers us. Because we wouldn't want to say this necessarily about ourselves, but we get really bothered when 
we see God go to work and bring his help into somebody's life that we don't think earned it, right? We get to this place where we start to observe God's work in other people's lives and we have a feeling about God's help in their lives and our response to our observation of God's help in their life is not a good one. And Jesus spoke about that in a story that he told in Luke chapter 18, okay? And first, here's the story that we read. It says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector, okay? Jesus is really specific to make this great into the spectrum comment. Okay, one's a Pharisee, one is a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, I give you a tenth of my income. And then Jesus switches over to the tax collector. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then here's Jesus' editorial about the scene. I tell you this, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's pretty clear. It's also a very condemning story that Jesus tells. But the most important part, perhaps, of this particular story is the information that Luke gives us about the crowd to whom Jesus is talking. This was not just a general story that he told to whoever happened to be around. Verse nine reads this way. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Now just think for a second about who we are. In our careers, in our life at home, in our neighborhood, maybe at school, maybe even along the sidelines of a soccer field. We are quick to pay attention to the people that we think have put in the work and that we think have done what they needed to do to be successful. And we are also quick to point out the people that we believe are at the other end of the spectrum who have not put in the work, who are lazy, who are just trying to skirt by and not doing any of the work at all. And we know who's who and we applaud those who are doing the work, and we look down our noses at those who aren't. But what happens when we bring that same thought and we bring that same attitude into how we view someone's faith? Because there's some of us who, who start to kind of establish ourselves as the ones who are always doing the work who are always volunteering, who are always filling in the gap, who are always making sure that we stop at the offering boxes on the way out the door, 
who are always at church if the doors are open, who have a whole list of boxes that we check, and we notice that we check them, and we also notice the people who are there at the same time checking them with us. And we pay attention to those who are doing all the work, and we're also paying attention to those who aren't. And if we're not careful, we can become very prideful, very arrogant about our faith and about the faith of others, and we can become the very people to whom Jesus was speaking. Because we decide that those of us who are doing all the work are the righteous ones, and those who aren't are lazy. And when our idea is that God is only doing his work and only doing his job, if I'm doing enough of my job, and he's only helping those who help themselves, we run the risk of being very arrogant and very prideful. Now let me take us back to Solomon and the wisest man in the world, book of Proverbs, here's what he said. There is more hope for fools than for people who think they are wise. The more we believe that we can manipulate God and that we can somehow control his hand and that we can somehow make him do what we want him to do and make him help where we want him to help, whenever we start to do that, the less wise we appear. In the New Testament, James wrote these words. He said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you Far more than work, the absence of pride and the presence of humility is necessary inside of our hearts for us to even notice when God is at work and when God is helping. Because no matter how hard you work, there are some things that you just can't control. I don't know if you've figured that out yet in life, but there are some things that are out of your control, that you can't fix, that you can't make right. And even in the midst of those things that you can't control, God will help. And God will even do what you can't do. That's really what grace is. Grace is this unbelievable forgiveness, this unbelievable second chance that is given to us to cover over and eliminate and wash away, as Alan was saying earlier, washing away the past, the present, and the future sin, making us white as snow. Only God can do that. We can't do that at all, so he can do what we can't do. And that applies to grace. That's the biggest receiver that we have, the biggest reward that is given to us by God, just absolutely free. But there are little things, too where we need God's help. We need the help of God in the little stuff. We need his help in the boring stuff, which means that we're gonna have to swallow our pride and bring the little things and bring the boring things and bring all the things that we think we can control and we think that we can fix and that we think that we could do without anybody's help and so we're not gonna bring it to God because we don't wanna bother him. We need to bring all of those things to God in prayer. What did we learn earlier about 
who it is that God helps. God helps those who ask for help. God helps those who are weak. God helps those who actually believe that they are in over their heads and that things are out of their control and they believe it and they understand it and they will admit it. And that humility is necessary in the small stuff before the small stuff becomes big stuff. Because that's really the, the, the problem is that there's lots of little stuff in our lives Lots of little things that we think we can fix. Lots of little things that we think we can control. That very quickly become big stuff. What started out as just kind of going over budget a little bit turns into debt. And there's a bad habit that we have that becomes addiction. And there's seemingly harmless flirting that's going on that turns into an affair. And there's a seed of hate towards a person that we have growing in our heart that turns into actual violence. There's a problem that we have with procrastination that turns into unemployment. And all of it happens because it was a little thing that became a big thing. All of it happens because of a lack of humility in us. Because we need humility to ask God to help us in the little things, in the small things, before the small things become really big things. Don't be like the Pharisee. Don't be like the ones that Jesus was talking to who found great pride in their own righteousness and looked down their noses at everybody else. And it wasn't just because of what they thought of everybody else, but they actually believed and they actually thought that they didn't need help with anything that was going on in their life, that they could do enough work, that they could do the right things, that they could jump through the right hoops and that everything would turn out just fine and they didn't need any help because they could put in enough effort to make it work. No matter how hard you work, you still need help. No matter how hard you have worked, you need help. You need help parenting. Okay? You may be a great parent. You still need God's help. You need help in your marriage. And you may be in a moment right now in your marriage. It's a season of time where, man, things are clicking along and things are going great and it couldn't be better. You still need God's help in your marriage. That addiction that you've been trying to kick for a long, long time now, and you've taken multiple runs at it, and each one maybe is a little more successful, and so you're thinking that you're going to be able to kind of kick it eventually. You need God's help. You need help from God when it comes to your finances, and when it comes to a desire to have a worthwhile friendship, when it, when it comes to a desire to have a worthwhile relationship that might someday turn into marriage down the road. And we can work on all of those things in our life, and we can put the effort into all of those things in our life, and we should, but we still need help. And it's not that God only helps those who help themselves. It's not that God only helps those who put their shoulder to the cart. But it doesn't mean that God wants us to be lazy either. 
God wants us to work. He's given us, given us gifts and talents and abilities to work in all kinds of different ways in the world, but none of us can work hard enough to earn a specific kind of help from God. They are not connected. We've been asked to do the work that God has given us to do. And God has also promised to come in and help us. But it's not an if-then statement. And it's not an if-then statement when it comes to grace either. Who is it that God helps? God helps those who ask for help. God helps the weak. God helps those who are in over their head. God helps when God just decides to help. And none of us have done enough work at any point along the way to earn grace that we have been given by our God. But it's not an invitation to bury our head in the sand. It's not an invitation to bury our hands and our feet in the sand and just say, look, I'm just gonna be because God's gonna help who he's gonna help. Because Dallas Willard, super smart guy, is still absolutely correct. Grace is not opposed to effort, he said, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to the work that you do. Grace is not opposed to you putting your shoulder to the cart. But grace is opposed to you thinking that God is only going to help you if you help yourself first. That statement that we attribute to Benjamin Franklin that goes all the way back to Aesop's fables and connected to Hercules and Greek mythology doesn't show up in the Bible. God has given you ability and given you talent to do work that he has given you to do. At the same time, our God is loving enough, gracious enough, wonderful enough to come in and help and do work in your life even when it's work that you can't do on your own. They're not connected. God doesn't just help those who help themselves. But he has called for us to do the work that he has given us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for the way that you watch us go through this life and we start to think through the work that we've done and how valuable that work is and how we deserve to be treated because of all of the work that we've done. And our thoughts are that if we do enough of the right things, then you'll do the things that we want for us. And God, we are so pleased that that is not how you work. That your grace and your forgiveness and your love and your mercy does not come based on the work that we do, but solely and completely on the work that you do. And God, would you help us to kind of wrestle with this in our head, to not be lazy because of it, but to marvel at just how helpful, loving, compassionate you are. God, may we come into your presence with humility not self-righteousness. And may we truly believe 
that God, you have come to rescue us when there was nothing we could do to help ourselves. We thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice, for his grace, for his forgiveness, for his love that pours over us, not because we jumped through some hoops to force it to happen or to trigger it to happen, but because you love us first. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that you'd stand with me this morning. Maybe you're here today, and today needs to be a day that you recognize that that grace and that forgiveness was meant for you. Not because of anything that you've done, not because of any work and effort that you've put into it, but actually in spite of all of that. That God's love and grace and mercy was meant for you. And today can be a day that you say yes to Jesus. You can say yes to him and be baptized in his name. Maybe that's a decision that you have to make this morning. And we invite you in just a moment as we sing to walk right down these aisles and make that decision. We have folks who will be here to talk with you, pray with you, answer questions for you about that. Or maybe today you've already made that decision, but you want to be a part of this family here at First Christian. We'd love for you to make that decision as well. And so we'll invite you to come as we sing here in just a moment. But we have an opportunity to lift up our voices in praise and worship to the one who didn't wait for us to do the right things or enough things or accumulate enough of our effort for him to go to work for us. He went to work for us simply because he loves us. And now we worship him because of the love we send back in his direction. May we sing together and praise him now.